What is up? It's Isaac. And Josh. And we are back again with the TMI podcast. And I'd like to start with a quote from Dallin H. Oaks, who says, The final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done. It is an acknowledgement of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. Which well prefaces our subject material today, How Limited is Postmortal Progression by the Terrell L. Givens. <laughs> it's, it's an article by him, but it's really an idea that probably has permeated the church for just about as long as it's been around. Or it's, it's been a question and a discussion in the church. And, um, there's all kinds of interesting implications of the fact that even such a question exists, you know, like um, in, a, in a restored church with the, the fullness of the gospel, how do we still not know this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some things where even with living prophets and, and ongoing revelation and such, you don't necessarily expect to have an answer to every question. Right. But you do kind of expect to have an answer to all of the Important most questions. fundamental things. Right. And, and for me, this seems like a fundamental thing. It's, right. So it's kind of... Um, so let me explain what we're talking about here. So we have a traditional Christian understanding, number one. Jesus comes. He's redeemed us. He's the Savior. And what it means is faith on him now gives us eternal salvation. A life in heaven rather than hell for those who don't accept and believe in him. And that's your dichotomy. And for most of Christianity, the final judgment occurs when you die. And there you are at the judgment. And whether or not you accepted Christ in your lifetime depends on where your eternal destination is. Now, the nature of the heaven and hell vary in all kinds of different religions, not just Christian ones. There seems to, This is a common theme. exists in even non-Abrahamic religions have this type of dichotomy. It's, it's an ancient concept where you go in a post-mortal place. And uh, that's been the dominant theory, is an eternal place where you're cast. Then comes Joseph Smith with an interesting theological point that for some reason hadn't been made for 1,800 years, <laughs> which is maybe there's a way for those who did not accept Christ in this lifetime to be redeemed in the end. And that the final judgment, which this actually is pretty consistent with New Testament readings, is something that occurs after a period of time broken into various sections. That it isn't something that happens immediately after death. And then you have the plan of salvation, an outline rather than a simple draw-up of our beginnings from conception to our ends being doomed to hell or blessed with eternity in heaven. And uh, Joseph Smith says that there is... Uh, I, should, I shouldn't say Joseph Smith says, because this is also rooted in um, scripture like the Book of Mormon that the Church of Jesus Christ uses and the Doctrine and Covenants, which state a spirit prison and a spirit paradise, or two places where those who are aware of Christ and his sacrifice and those who aren't exist. That aren't, it's not a specifically two specific physical places. It could be a state. Uh, or it could be two places where people are separate. And the, the conclusion is everyone has the opportunity to hear and choose willingly whether they will accept or reject Christ as their Savior and do what is necessary to come into the most deep and abiding relationship with him. That's the, th- that's the conclusion that's drawn in Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. And this conclusion... Now, how far do you take it is the question, because after the final judgment, rather than a simple hell and heaven dilemma or dichotomy, we have three kingdoms of glory. Each are glorious, a celestial, terrestrial, and celestial kingdom, in which the celestial kingdom is where God himself dwells, and the subsequent kingdoms are not the immediate dwelling place of Christ, but where, as said in Doctrine and Covenants 76, where good, where honorable people might go who would have accepted the gospel but weren't valiant enough. What is it? Not valiant a testimony of Christ? Yeah. So read up on this a little bit to get the most context. But the question is this. Just like the article states, how limited is post-mortal progression? We, it's pretty well understood in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that you can accept Christ after this life. 
and choose and do what is necessary to come to the most even abiding relationship with him. But after the final judgment, keyword final, <laughs> is there any advancement from a lower kingdom of glory to a higher kingdom? So this is the question that Tarot Givens essentially pulls resources on from past church leaders and other doctrinal sources. So. Yeah, and so there's all kinds of questions and implications here. I mean, first of all, um, like Isaac was saying, Joseph Smith addresses this idea of whether or not the whole human family can even be saved, whether it's not, whether or not it's even the, uh, theoretically possible. And he answers affirmatively, it is theoretically possible. Every single person on earth could be saved. Each individually is capable of and susceptible to salvation. Um, so the question here is kind of the question of whether the whole human family will be saved. That's kind of the, the implication right. of this question of progression between kingdoms. It's a question of whether or not there really is, if the final judgment is really final, which in some ways is only a, a question of time. You know, it's a question that we ask from within the perspective of time, from within the dimension of time. And we think of, you know, a line after which it's too late, a right. period, a point in time. Um, Pretty normal in human thinking. Right. And, and but the, the, the reason it's a difficult question is because um, it collides with a lot of our other theological beliefs in the Church of Jesus Christ, um, such as agency. You know, if the whole, so, so the idea here, let me, let me back up and say the idea is that um, after judgment, there are these three kingdoms, celestial, terrestrial, telestial. And then there's not very much doctrine about this, but there's a fourth region, which is known as outer darkness. <laughs> That's right. And, and outer, I mean, these words are so nuanced because sometimes outer darkness refers to the spirit prison that Isaac was talking about, which is a state of probation, a temporary state prior to the final judgment, prior to the resurrection. But it can also refer to this place after, if there is this, after this final judgment, after the resurrection, which is more or less, or typically understood to be a state of permanency. So for example, the, the spirits who followed Satan, Satan himself and the one-third, are understood to be going to this outer darkness. And then those who came to earth, those who inherited what we call their second estate, and progressed further just in the simple fact of having a physical body, in which their spirit can dwell, they'll be dispersed among the, uh... <laughs> Come on. We've got, we got our third guy coming in. Guest star, special arrival. So they'll be dispersed among the celestial, terrestrial, and telestial kingdoms with a... Some people think it's quite a few. Some people think it's only a handful that will end up in this outer darkness. Um, and whether or not you conceive of this as kind of a, as a pyramid with only a few at the top, you know... Straight is the gate and few, or straight is the path and few there are that find it. Or if it's more of like an upside down pyramid, um, based on this idea of the liberality of God. Um, but so the, the question is, if after some, some point of final judgment, if there is still an opportunity to progress between kingdoms, and you might ask, why not? You know, why would God ever right. um, turn someone away? And so it's, it really is kind of a time question. It's kind of a semantic thing. Right. Like, is this the point, is the final judgment by definition the point at which they've had every choice and they've made their, their final decision? Right. But why would someone ever choose to be in a state of less than ultimate happiness for all time and eternity? Right. Um, at the same time, some people have been wary of the implications of the idea that you can progress between kingdoms because it makes it seem like it doesn't really matter what you do. Right. And then even those sometimes who accept the idea of progression between kingdoms have suggested that it's still a, a relative progression. It's like relative, greater or lesser infinities. Right. And so perhaps those who are in the celestial kingdom ascend to the point at which those in the celestial kingdom once were, but they've also been moving on. And right. so there's always this staggering between. And so those in the celestial kingdom will always be further ahead right. in some way. Um, but there are some barriers to this idea. There's a... Uh, for example, in the church, we believe that you have to be married to inherit the celestial kingdom, mm -hmm. um, baptized and married. Um, and 
the reason we do baptisms for the dead is in large part because we believe um, baptism has to be done by a person who has a physical body. And, and so as opposed to having some kind of spiritual baptism going on, instead we do it by proxy for that person, and then they can then accept it. Um, so whether or not these are kind of impenetrable barriers, whether or not you know a person can be... Um, like James E. Talmadge, for example, writer of this book, Jesus the Christ, interpreted the passage in the New Testament about the, the bride and the seven brothers, and, and he, you know, he tells the Sadducees who are trying to get him to deny the resurrection, um, he tells them, like, you don't even know what you're talking about, and the resurrection, there is no marrying or giving in marriage. And so um, Talmadge suggests that there's no marriage after the resurrection, and that, and that this is kind of an, a... a or the implication is that this is a ceiling to some kind of progression. Like those who are not married in the new and everlasting the yeah the new and everlasting order of the priesthood will forever be stuck below and outside of the celestial kingdom. So there's lots of contingent questions here. Like for example, if there is progression between kingdoms, do we even ex extend it to the one third to the premortal? those who became devils, those who rejected the plan of salvation in the first instance, and, and Satan himself. And because there is no question that in order for them to progress, they would have to get bodies, and, and how would that happen? And in order for those in the uh, lower kingdoms to, to attain the highest, they would have to get married, which is uh, not even, you know, that requires a second person. Right. And um, Seems out of their own agency. So it, it is kind of a question of essentially, because I think if agency is to be taken seriously, then it has to be at least theoretically possible that someone would be obstinate to the end mm -hmm. and refuse to accept the right. gospel. And even though it may be difficult to conceive of, there's always going to be reasons. I don't know exactly how it's going to look, but I, I, I assume, and I think the scriptures support the idea that there are going to be just as many reasons not to accept the gospel in the afterlife as in this life. Otherwise, there would seem to be a premium on those who, who don't hear about the gospel in this life, and, and then they find out, and they're in a world with no temptation, and no sin, and no drugs, and no anything, and, and it's just easy. I don't, I don't think it, it's ever going to be simple or easy for anyone to really live the gospel in its entirety. So I think it has to be at least theoretically possible for a person to refuse until the very end. And so the question is whether there will be any who will do that. If, if everyone will eventually be convinced and swayed and saved. Right. And um, so, so all kinds of implications here. Word. <laughs> just to throw one other thing in here, I think almost more interesting than the question that's itself is the fact of the question, the fact that it's unknown, that, or at least that there have been prominent, intelligent, thoughtful church authorities on both sides of the question, and, and there's never been an official church stance right. on the question. Um, and even scriptures, you might be able to say, are... Right, there's language in the scripture such as, you know, where God and Christ are, they'll never be able to come... And um, you know, the, and this is the, the time to prepare to meet and, to meet God in right, the Book of Mormon. The day when eventually no labor can be done. Right. But language in the scriptures is almost never to be taken at face value. That's true. You know, like just the fact that outer darkness or hell can refer to two different places alone kind of gives us an idea of right. how, how nuanced it is here. Um, and and language has changed over time. You know, there are some people who who have suggested that. Um, the language about an internal division of the celestial kingdom into three categories was actually referring just to the celestial terrestrial exactly. at the time because celestial was understood to be the whole of salvation. Exactly. But so the one last thing here is um, that I want to introduce for our discussion is the fact that we don't know. Should that be troubling? Mm -hmm. Is it what is it? You know, you would think that this is one of the basic things about the gospel. Um, like, you know, maybe it's enough to know that I can be saved. Right. Probably it is. Um, that there, there is absolutely a possibility for every person individually to make the choices that will lead to salvation. Right. Um, 
But, you know, I think it's a similar thing with the, with the question of the, the church's history with African Americans and the priesthood, for example. Some people want to say that's in the past, it doesn't matter, and it was never key doctrine, it was never core doctrine anyways. Um, but I disagree that it was never core doctrine because it was, it had implications for the salvation of those individuals, those who couldn't enter the temple and right. receive saving ordinances, for example. Um, so it's really not a peripheral question at all. Right. And I think it's the same here. Um, so we can go any direction with this now. Um, ben, we want to introduce Ben. Here's Ben. Sure. <laughs> Ben's here. Ben and Josh go way back, probably eons before they were both born. <laughs> so we all do. Yeah. That's true. But here he is. Uh, we don't really introduce ourselves very much, so you don't really have to, but you can say what you think about what Josh just said, if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Josh, as you can tell, Josh is a very deep thinker, <laughs> um, and I think that he asks a lot of the right questions, um, which I appreciate. Um, I think um, what immediately comes to mind is the point about how there are differing opinions by informed, thoughtful church leaders on both sides. Um, and I think that, um, you know, like that points to, um, you know, like almost like different, um, like different, um, like almost like notions, like preconceived notions or, or, or beliefs. Um, and I think that, um, you know, like um, one thing that I um, appreciate with that is um, because we have, you know, like these, these different sides, um, we can have a discussion like this. Um, I think that I'm personally of the opinion, um, you know, like that progression between kingdoms is possible. Um, and I think that I side with that faction. Um, but I appreciate having, you know, like other um, opinions um, because, you know, like it, it makes me ask the right questions. I wonder, um, I mean, in a, in a similar way to the evolution debate, which is also one of these big questions in the church or, where people have spoken out on either side and there's never really been an official church stance, I do think that people can be talking about the same idea and have different um, notions of what is implied and what it actually means. Um, I think a lot of people interpreted evolution as being automatically and unavoidably incompatible with the fall of Adam and Eve, and therefore with the creation, and therefore with the atonement, right. and therefore absolutely contrary to and incompatible with the gospel. And I don't think it has to be that way. I think that the two are compatible, that you can have both at once. And, and I wonder, some people, um, when they talked about this idea of progression between kingdoms, for example, um, Bruce R. McConkie, Boyd K. Packer, um, seem to think that it would automatically imply a kind of salvation by grace, a guaranteed salvation for everyone, therefore sin now and be saved later kind of thing. Right. Um, Which obviously they would not um, promote that kind of doctrine if that's that's what they understand its tendency to be, is to promote sin and laziness and procrastination and... So, so then let's conceive for a second. Um, well, maybe we can talk a little bit more about like why, why are these? Why do we kind of have a gut re- Maybe sometimes a gut reaction against right. it. Why is this idea problematic for members of the church? But also, if we were to conceive that there is progression between kingdoms, what would the implications be? Are there still those who would so hold out obstinate to the right? End? Uh, I had two thoughts with what you were saying. Number one, the idea of a porcupine truth, which I think I've elaborated on before, but very briefly. Uh, it's common, and I don't know if this is actually true. I, I, it might ironically be a porcupine truth that informs the porcupine truth, <laughs> but that a- African parents uh, teach their kids to that porcupines shoot their quills. That way none of the kids get close enough to the porcupines that they get stuck with the quills. Because porcupines don't actually shoot their quills. It's not true. It's a lie. But by telling them the lie, they actually 
do a great good to the children and keep them safe. So the same might be true. For example, the the second coming is uh, the fact that the second coming is happening now. It's always around the corner. It's always around the corner. It's a great thing to tell religious people to make them more pious. You know, it's great to wake up in the morning and think, "Whoa, it could be tomorrow." Let's make today the most Christian day of my life because, boy, that's great for your discipleship. Now, how true is the idea? Of course, no man knoweth, but the fact that in Paul's day, he was telling people the, the, the second coming could happen is uh, an indicative of the fact that it's just a great tool, you know? And the same may be true that if there is a final, final, final judgment, then you should teach people... Uh, that there is a final, final, final judgment because that encourages the most pious behavior. So porcupine truths, I think they're taught very frequently. Adults use them to teach children constantly. And despite them not being completely true, I can't morally fault the people for teaching them because I understand the intentions. I feel like it's not a morally reprehensible thing unless it were to teach you to do something morally reprehensible instead. And... uh, but I, I don't. Well, it, it is even even that is kind of problematic because it assumes that the parents have a perfect that's right apprehension of morality, and that they can use lies and deception as a means to an end to promote their morality. That's right. Although no parent can really do anything other than teach their kids what they genuinely believe. To well, the, I, I would say uh, morality. You're right. We thought we talked about morality last time, but. Uh, it's important for people to do the best they can with what they have. And I cannot fault people for not doing what they should, not doing something with what they don't have, you know. But that's, that's besides the point. Here's the second thing I wanted to say. The second thing is um, of finality, of true finality. Uh, in a human conception of time, we live for like 70 or 80 years now, which is a huge blessing. We didn't used to live that long. But still, it's a very limited conception of time. That is the breadth of our existence as a mortal being. And so the idea that there is a time period, the idea of time periods means something different to a being like us than it would to a being who plans on living for an infinite amount of time. What I mean by saying that is um, hell for a million years even when followed by heaven for three million years, is still a bad thing, very uncomfortable. What I mean to say is the damnation is a state, right, without being able to progress. I do think, I'm of the same thought as Ben, that there is a progression for everyone. But I'm also of the thought that the progression is difficult and that rejection causes it to take more time and time is the only thing that we really... It's, it's the tool by which we experience things. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that, well, if I can eventually escape from this hell to a heaven is a possibility, does not exclude the fact that you are suffering in it for a hell in that time, and perhaps a very long time. Do you see what I'm saying? Of course. So, I mean, I guess the conclusion is it shouldn't bother... I don't think it should bother the proponents of a final, final judgment, that there is possibly a, it's not as final as they think it is. Mm -hmm. Because if you are finally judged and you decided to procrastinate the day of your repentance, you will still end up in a place that is a damnation for a period of time. The period of time might be very long in duration, and you might still be wrestling with deception for eons and eons of an existence. And that should be dissuading enough in itself. Does that make sense? Right. I agree that the, uh, I agree with the porcupine truth approach, that this is not, um, the tendency of this idea is not such that you need to make it up if it's not the case, you know, that you need to refuse to teach it because of what you think it's going to cause people to do. Um, and Ben Ben and I have kind of gone into this before, it really is, um, (laughs) Resurfacing. It comes down to a couple different things, you know. What is your conception of God? I don't think any of us here think that God would ever turn someone away who is trying to repent. So we take that for given. What is your definition of, of salvation? Um, 
and that one's not terribly important. You know, some people think it means to become like God in every sense, including being omnipotent and creating worlds and, and such. Um, and essentially to, to inherit and then institute your own generation of the plan of salvation right. in a way. Other people think the definition, and this is a definition that's used in DNC 76, is therefore they are gods because they have no end. And it has reference to this idea of having eternal increase um, and, and also eternal offspring to be, to have an eternal family. And, but then, then there's also the idea that, or the question of, um, you know, what, what is this final judgment? Is it perhaps the point at which you escape from time, from the dimension of time and enter into eternity? Um, and I'm not ready just to just to dismiss the idea that there is a final judgment and there are final separations and barriers, um, given that really smart, intelligent, gospel-oriented, you know, prophets, people like President Kimball have been very explicit, and even people like President Nelson have made allusions, has used the phrase final judgment and such. Um, for me, the way I conceive of a final judgment, if there was a final um, judgment, a point of no return kind of thing, is is it's never God saying, you know, you want to repent, but it's too late now. He never turns anyone away. It's never, you know, as, the, as this, uh, C.S. Lewis says, in the end, there are only two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Mm. And he tries to portray this in his book, The Great Divorce, how how there will, will potentially be people who, you know, he has a, a little caravan from hell come up to heaven to see what it's like, and the angels up there are just begging them to live with them, to stay in heaven. Um, it's really interesting. The spirits in hell are shadowy and insubstantial compared to the heavenly world. Walking on the grass hurts them because it pierces their feet, because it doesn't bend beneath them, because they're so without substance. Mm. Um, but there, you, you kind of see the, the human tendencies that could lead people to continue to just be stubborn and to refuse this gift. So I, first of all, I want to say I never consider or conceive of God as turning someone away when I think of there being um, uh, let's call it a ceiling to progression for some. Um, and also, when I think of what the final judgment is or what it would be, it would be by definition that point at which a person has had every opportunity to exercise their agency, to determine where they want to go, and then they've made their choice. You know, it's kind of the point at which, like, what new thing could prevail upon them to change their mind? Right. Um, and... Uh, and, and so if you have this idea that someone decides eventually after all this, all this time to, to repent and then wants to turn to God and he lets them, well, then that's by definition before the final judgment. Right. Um, so if there, if there is such a state, um, if, for example, the, the one-third from before this life automatically embarked upon such a state when they... Um, refuse to come here and obtain bodies which are indispensable for salvation. Um, okay, is is the opposite true? Is the opposite true in the sense that you could uh, you could regress at any point as well? Or does the faith that someone would have in a celestial kingdom be so that they would, uh, they would not be able to reject. It's kind of a question of what kind of experiences in life we live. We have experiences we have in life we live after this life. You know, do we, do we continue to be faced with um, moral choices? And even the is there is there the possibility of sinning? Mm -hmm. You know, we're told here that even the very elect can be led away and deceived right. and, and fall from grace. Um, and 
but is there, you know, for the righteous as well as for the wicked, is there this final, this point, this final judgment at which you've had every opportunity, you've been in every situation, you've demonstrated the the ultimate tendency of your of your spirit and of your character of of what you're choosing as a person and thereafter you're you kind of have this trajectory that's going to continue for eternity and if, if we think of it mathematically perhaps those in like terrestrial and telestial they're kind of like um, logarithmic functions they approach a limit mm. and and I'm not saying a trajectory has to be linear you know you could have um, a higher order function, for example, those in the celestial kingdom are perhaps progressing, ascending, but also doing so exponentially. Mm-hmm. And that's the, you know, the, the continuity of their trajectory is both the slope and the acceleration. Right. Um, so, I don't know, does it even matter? Does it you even? Know, if we're accepting that God is not going to turn anyone away. Um, well, I mean, really I mean, the, the so like well, we've talked about this before. I'm of the opinion that the plan of salvation is the most genius plan devised. If your end goal is to produce the most net happiness, that as opposed to as opposed to a gross happiness, for example, and there's so many aspects of this, so many moving parts. How are net happiness and gross happiness different? Gross happiness is simply the amount of happiness one receives during their existence as a conscious being. And net happiness is that happiness subtracted by the suffering Mm, that they've experienced. And so it's the goal is for a net. And I mean, if you, the problem with calculating a net in an eternally expansive system is it makes it almost impossible because you can only compute from point zero to wherever you are at that point and clearly time hasn't finished by that time. So there, there could be something else that happened in the future. But for anyone who progresses infinitely, any um, temporary suffering will eventually be zero in comparison. That's right. That's, I mean, that's the, whole, uh, that's the whole, why would we take up our cross? Why would we choose to be persecuted? Why would we choose to keep commandments that seem overly pious and uh, prevent us from experiencing worldly pleasures. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Because in heaven, you get these. But it could also be a slightly dangerous philosophy. What if the heaven that you're looking forward to is the one with 72 virgins for the rest of your life, right? Uh, Then you're simply enduring a pain now to enjoy a separate worldly pleasure, arguably, in a separate existence. And that in itself doesn't seem pious and wise and spiritual. So maybe the nature of the, of the happiness that we enjoy in another life is of a completely different nature. All of that aside, I, what I think is um, if, if our suffering in a place of lesser glory does decrease our net happiness, which it, it does, it certainly does, right? If you were to live a life where you didn't go into a degree of lesser glory and you instead did what you were supposed to, air quotes, before the, fu- the final judgment and were sorted out into the celestial kingdom instead, then you wouldn't be dealing with the debuff. You wouldn't be dealing with the subtraction that is imposed on you by a lower kingdom. And that is exactly the point. That is exactly the point. And even if th- those in outer darkness, you know, what if Jesus meant when he told Judas, it's better that you wouldn't have been born? Not because there was no way Judas would never, there was no way that Judas could not see Jesus once more. That he couldn't, over time and extreme effort, and in true repentance, see the Savior again. But instead that he meant, you will spend so long in a place of deception and of lies and of suffering, that your net gain will be so little compared to what it could have been. You have spoiled the blessings that you could have received. Well, and, and I think I think that's definitely true that um, he is worse off than if he hadn't been born. That by embarking upon a second estate, you increase your your potential for the magnitude um, 
the you know the the distance you can traverse in either direction for for good or for evil. Um, for example, Cain is told that he's going to rule over Satan, which presumably means he's even more wicked and a greater prince of darkness than Satan is somehow. That he's mm-hmm. going to you know, he's told he's going to go to hell and that you're going to rule over Satan, which um, Joseph Smith says is because he has a body and Satan doesn't. But um, I do think. I think that um, whether or not this this outer darkness hell is is temporary or not, or or at least for for some, um, I do think it's worse to be to to have come to the second estate and then end up in outer darkness than to be a part of that that heavenly third, um, because it's a rejection of a greater light and, and greater opportunity. Um, but I think we can maybe ask some related questions here to see if they help and, and see if we can source scriptures. Um, so, so for example, for one, is there any scriptural suggestion that Satan and the pre-mortal host that followed him, the devils, that they can be saved, rescued? Um, is there any reason to believe that that is the case? Is there any reason to believe that that's not the case? Or are we purely going out of our conception of God's liberality here? Mm-hmm. Which changes among generations and peoples and things, I think. Like, why would, uh, total aside, but our, I think our generation, in my experience, asking people this question, almost everyone responds with, how could you limit the powers of Christ? Certainly there is post-mortal progression. It's very resonant with Right, and it's really not a question of, of whether or not he's... He's capable of saving them, right? But whether or not they, in that first rebellion, um, essentially set their stance mm-hmm. once and for all, right. whether or not they have turned themselves away from him and will refuse ever to look back—not that he's still not reaching out, or not that he couldn't save them if they did look back. Right, like the prodigal son can always mm-hmm. return. But, you know, there's other generations of people who it's very easy for them to understand this conception of ultimate justice and finality. Right. And, and I don't think it, it's really problematic from an idea of the omnipotence of God. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there are things he is incapable of doing. He is incapable of saving us in sin. He is incapable of forcing us to be saved. Um, of, you know, he... And, and it's interesting, that's usually the narrative around the plan of salvation is that God understood that some would be lost, but he gave us our agency because um, it was the only way to, you know, there was no option. There right. was no path to, to becoming like him that does not involve agency because right. he is in an, in an agential state. Right. Um, cannot be compelled to be happy. And when he says lost in that sense, do you think he means those who endure the types of suffering that they could have avoided had they not been deceived, or the kind of loss that they are gone away from me and will never return? I think either is an option. Um, what about Satan? Is there any hope for him? I just wonder, and it's kind of related to the idea of, like, can you sin after this life? Mm-hmm. Um, can you, I mean, obviously you can sin even if you don't have a body. That's obvious from the fact that one-third rebelled and sinned. And, and in, in a sense, sinning is just anything that, that halts or delays your progression. And so in that sense, they definitely sinned. Um, but after, you know, after millennia of, you know, say, say millennia of time in hell... What could prevail upon you after all that time? That that is like what what new thing would there be that you hadn't considered or experienced before? Right, wouldn't you have to had experienced? And I think everything. <laughs> the time is such a limit, though, in our understanding of this whole process. You know, infinity. Because infinity, I'd want to be the bad guy too. Eventually, there's nothing else to do. I mean, wouldn't God, if he was playing Infinity, also try to play the role of Satan and every other person on Earth? That's the kind of, that's the kind of idea that eternity is. It's the kind of idea that 
you play every part in the role and memorize every line, you know? Like, that's what you... you why If you want to experience the greatest happiness, then why not spend thousands of years in a torture chamber at some point? Maybe that'll be the most entertaining thought you have when you're 150 million trillion years old. Right, and that, what about... Sorry, this is a different idea, but what about language like unforgivable sin? Unforgivable sin. sin. Right. You know, Sons of perdition. Two things. Um, at least my understanding has been that one, it refers to murder, which is unforgivable, unforgivable in the sense in that it keeps you out of the celestial kingdom. You know, for example, um, I don't have my phone right now, but DNC one thirty two read about how David has fallen from his exaltation. It's a very final statement. David. Not for the adultery, but for the murder of Uriah. Right. Has, has fallen from his exaltation has, and is relegated to the celestial kingdom. Right. And so in that sense... Um, it sounds like a final condemnation. Murder is an unforgivable sin in that it leads to... It establishes a barrier, or it may establish a barrier that you cannot pass. And is damnation in the sense it is unforgivable and results in damnation in the sense that you kept out of the celestial kingdom. Sometimes damnation is used to refer to anything except the celestial kingdom. Right. And then there is the, the higher um, unforgivable sin, which is essentially the opposite pole of having your calling and election made sure, which is to have your, you know, your falling from grace and your damnation made sure kind of thing, which is the rejection of, by definition, the rejection of the Holy Ghost and of the Savior when one has a perfect knowledge of them. That's how Joseph meant to find it. Right. He said it's like looking in the sun, full noonday sun, and refusing to admit that it exists. Right. And so if it is by definition having a perfect knowledge, presumably, you know, to have a perfect knowledge of them means to know what is possible, to know, you know, the, the doctrine and also the character of Christ. And if a person could come to that point and reject it and commit this unpardonable sin that results in the damnation to outer darkness, what could possibly prevail upon that person after? You know, there is no new knowledge for them to gain that they didn't already reject. Um, we might think, like, maybe it's just so much suffering that eventually they reach a breaking point. Um, but I kind of think that's an outdated idea of punishment and of suffering. The right. Suffering is their own is is self-imposed. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe unforgivable in the sense that one can never see themselves in a place of exaltation. You know? But it it is hard for me... I mean, repentant murderers exist. Very pious murderers who did, mm-hmm. you know, committed their entire lives Absolutely. to a life of worship and of goodness and tried to make every possible reparation, even... In their but mortality. there are some things that you can never give back. That's you right. Can make every, and, and of course that's where the atonement comes in, is to fix what we can't fix. But, that's right. Um, it is certainly an unrestitutable sin. Right. You can never give that person their life back. You can never give that family their, their child back. Um, right. So I don't know. Personally, I, I certainly am not of the viewpoint that everyone will eventually ascend or progress, that that is going to happen, that that is guaranteed to happen. I think that's fundamentally contrary to the doctrine of agency and is, has the same problem as predetermination and universal salvation by grace. Um, I think that there are some who will be rebels to the end. But I mean, I'm certainly open to the idea that... Um, anyone could that progression is an open door that will never be shut it's locked from the inside kind of thing mm-hmm. there are those who will never unlock it right but it is unlockable um even then i still am i still tend towards the idea of relative infinities mm-hmm. um, i totally agree with you i think that's the only logical conclusion you can draw be, right because and even i don't know if it's exponential it's uh distancing relative infinities, you know. Um, But, I 
And if it is an open door for anyone, I'm curious what that would look like, you know. Say millennia, or I don't know, make up a word, trillennia from now. <laughs> um, if Satan or one of his followers decides to repent, like, are they just going to be like thrown in like with the grandkids mm-hmm. and their plan of salvation? Like, go get a body now? Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, the earth is going to be transformed a new heaven and a new earth and the earth is going to become the celestial kingdom so probably they can't be born and have their mortal life there right um so i don't know i guess my i have two reasons for thinking well one reason for i'm i'm not really open to the idea that everyone will will eventually progress upwards through the hierarchy of kingdoms as for the idea that they could, that it's an option. You know, just like everyone could be saved, I think that a necessary corollary of the idea that anybody can choose to be saved is that anybody can choose to be damned. I think so too. Um, and if anyone can be truly faithful to the end, undoubtedly, then someone could be truly faithless and doubtful to the end as well. Otherwise it's not really agency. Right. Um, but I think part of the problem for me is maybe an overly literal interpretation of kind of the the dividing lines between kingdoms, the barriers. Um, you know, I think the idea, for example, that within the celestial kingdom there's the three degrees, that the requirements are baptism, endowment, and celestial marriage. I think that's a beautiful idea. Um, it's very symbolic. It explains the patterning of the temple. Um, and that, and I think the Scriptures are very clear that, you know, someone who's baptized could end up in the celestial or terrestrial kingdoms. Right. But nobody can end up in the celestial kingdom who's not baptized. Right. That's what Jesus teaches Nicodemus. Um, and in some of those it is, and then for example with Satan and his followers just having a body. There is that question of, of how would that barrier be overcome after right. the mortal probation is, is by, is passed. Right. Um, you could see how it, it might be able, they might be recycled into someone else's plan, possibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just, there always seems to be an avenue for the ultimate redemption. Uh, but I just don't think that's really the, quest, the thing in question. I mean, to live the, the good life, let's say the philosophical good life, you know, all, all kinds of people have come up with their great systems of what makes the greatest and goodest life. <laughs> and uh, I think. The earlier you, you start living that good life in every system, the better of a life you have, even in comparison, you know? Uh, I think the greatest repenters, Saul to Paul, Alma the Younger, would have told you, I'm so glad for what has happened to me, but I wish I would have been happier from day born to day dead had I chosen to repent earlier. And the question is not so much, was I saved? I absolutely was. I was saved thanks to the grace of Christ. Yet, I would have rather been chosen to be saved earlier. I would have rather embraced it earlier because I would have had the best life. Why not extend that logic out as far as we can? I mean, then wouldn't every spirit and every soul have said, I resided in the celestial kingdom because of my arrogance and this forth and whatever. I was eventually saved. Imagine them telling this to their kids, right? Mm-hmm. I was eventually saved, but I sure wish I would have chosen to do it earlier. I would have had, I would have been on a better point than I am right now. However, in the in the most Christian fashion, uh, a place of living in the past is still not a place that I think a celestial being would reside, right? They would reside in things that are beautiful and that are relevant to them now. Mm -hmm. Alma revels in his uh, conversion and and, uh, leverages his rebellion to teach important principles. So it's it's not as if they're always uh, wallowing in their pit of suffering that, oh, I wish I just would have done it sooner. But do you see where... Right, and that's kind of where I fall. It's somewhere between these two poles of guaranteed salvation and damnation that cannot be overcome. Is that there's this open door, but I don't think everyone will take it. Um, But it's just got all kinds of super interesting implications and and questions, you know. Um, 
for example, if we can become like God in the ultimate sense, in the creator sense, um, that means every one of us, having sinned and then repented, can become like him. And the implication is either um, that he was one, you know, there is some allusions to the idea that he once had a mortal probation of some sort um, from Joseph Smith. Right. And, and if so, then he once sinned and repented and became clean right. through a Savior who's probably not Jesus Christ, his own son, but probably someone a generation higher in some way. Right. Um, although, what does it then mean that God was God from all eternity? I don't know. Um, or, or, or then... But then that puts Jesus Christ in kind of a unique position where he's perfect having never sinned and his own father is perfect having sinned. Right. Um, and then the question of... Um, well, then you can also just take the approach that um, being saved in the ultimate sense doesn't necessarily mean that we have to become like God in that way. Um, that it's about eternal family living in the covenant for all time. Um, and maybe it doesn't really matter that you, uh, you know, Jesus Christ or another who becomes like him, whether or not one of us wants sin or not, we've repented and become perfect, and perhaps that's the only relevant thing. Right. Um, okay. Maybe a concluding question? Uh, covenants... Binding together. This is also one of the great discoveries of the Restoration in Joseph Smith's period was the idea of sealing and coming together. And the thing, I think what we've discussed now is kind of a philosophical approach to the individual experience of exaltation, but we know that there's no way to divorce the communal aspect from all of this. And uh, you, and in Joseph Smith's conception of exaltation, exaltation means you live with God in a state of eternal progression, is that you cannot do it alone. And it doesn't just mean you and a spouse, which I have talked about. <laughs> Why that could be a problematic idea. Uh, but it's a communal thing. You go as a community, and preferably as a family unit, for example. And that's some type of unit. So then... Uh, we have temples which perform these types of ceilings, which, assuming at the end of all of it, uh, all of these ordinances performed, that everyone will have been sealed to someone, and it is very possible to be sealed to someone, and one of you be exalted and the other one reject your sealing. That is absolutely, absolutely true. But like, for uh, a parent or a couple of parents. Loyal to covenants, Lehi, Sariah, uh, Lehi having a dream where I partake of the goodness and the love of God and his atonement, so does a few of my sons, but two of them don't. And they are sealed, it seems like. It seems like they had all the opportunities given. To what extent does the promise Lehi made to God and to his family protect his kids and allow them to come into deep fruition? Because there, there are some people of the thought that if someone is born in the covenant, well, okay, a separate idea. Uh, and it's, it's a Protestant revolution brings up the idea of intentionality much more than any other period of Christian history, whereas the deathbed confession is just not very appetizing anymore. The last rites aren't so appetizing anymore. A life of sin and of uh, hedonism, and then at the final day you confess to your priest. And your salvation is contingent on whether or not... That's right. It's not so. It's not so beautiful anymore. And because now we see, with the Protestant Revolution, it's your intention. Did you really mean to repent? And you could get baptized. And if you didn't really think about changing your life to Christ, you didn't really have that intention. It doesn't count. It doesn't count anymore. And that's really permeated most of Christianity, I'd say. And it's a, I think it's a good idea. Intentions are very, very relevant. Uh, but I say, why did I say that? Maybe that was something different than what I was trying to say. <laughs> uh, the intention is beautiful. Covenant, Lehi's family. Covenants, yeah, yeah. It, uh, the intention of someone, 
Uh, there are people of the thought that if their children are born in the covenant, then that does seal them permanently. And even if they drag their feet and a little bit, they'll make it up there. Yes, we read that some of those statements in this article. Mm-hmm. So, but what if the what about the intentionality? Where was Laman and Lemuel's true intentionality in keeping the covenants, regardless of all these ways that they were tied, that they had the proper ordinances supposedly, and all these other great ac- accesses to Christ. Right, and then, and then sometimes you wonder if, well, do we take agency too seriously? Because obviously there are things that I can do. Um, at least I take the approach that my actions can never ultimately interfere with another person's salvation. But my agency can certainly help them or, or hinder them along the path. Um, and is that not a violation of their agency? Um, and... And then there's always kind of the loophole solution of, well, like, Laman and Lemuel, if they're wicked in this life, never repent, but they're still saved through the covenant. Well, maybe it has something to do with pre-mortal righteousness, which is an idea that kind of, it's really not, we can understand it in general, but not in particular. We can't know the particulars of particular individuals, and therefore it's not very helpful. Um, So that's kind of... You know, and it, it does kind of reek of predetermination, kind of right. thing, like the old doctrine or the old teaching that it's not unfair to African Americans because they they were like the wishy washy and the war in heaven, right? Who barely made it onto the right side, right? You know, um, the apathetic intentionality. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that was a theory. I think um, ultimately, all we really can come down to is what is the nature of God? You know, is he is he of a mind to save his children? And he is, mm-hmm. um, and he's not going to turn any away. Um, I so think that I think of, that's the period. I think that's the period yeah. right there. I don't think he's going to turn anyone away. And just because he isn't doesn't mean that the people who do something wrong or are deceived and are arrogant and make mistakes will not suffer tremendously for the things that they do. So tremendously that you might say something like they'll never be forgiven because they truly might not forgive themselves or choose to overcome their deceit. They're at will to do so. Or to say something like it would have been better if you hadn't been born because the type of suffering that they would endure in a state of arrogance is is unfathomable. Right, and it's the suffering that's necessary to heal you, to repair you. That's right. Um, it's it's the, the cauterizing of the wound. That's right. Kind of thing. It's, it's not just arbitrary punishment. The surgeon of God. And so it's the, the wounds that you inflict upon yourself and the deception that you have to overcome. That is the... The experience of suffering is 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 returning to... And that, that's, that's the... Oh, this is a thought that I just have had recently. I... I think Romans 8 talks about we're never separated from the love of God. Uh, All things will work together for the good of them who love the Lord. And that's true. But I don't, what I think that means is even if uh, something God hasn't tailor designed for you, like a specific strain of pancreatic cancer has come into your life, um, it comes to the good of you because that's the beauty of Christ is that he can change something that's really horrible into something that's good. He can make it so that you have a net gain. It's the best business trade deal ever, except in Christ. And I think the most beautiful conclusion is that if you are in a place of extreme doubt, even in mortality, if you're in a place of extreme rejection and arrogance, and even if you are still in that place for thousands and thousands of years, of just torment of yourself, unwillingness to change. That there is a Christ whose atonement stretches so far beneath all that is negative and painful that you can be saved, and not only can you be saved, but the years that you spent in torment can be transfigured, you know, tr- uh, completely transformed into something that's beautiful and propels you forward, you know? Not that that will necessarily place you in front of any of your other brothers and sisters, who some have been more valiant and less deceived than yourself. 
that says nothing about you in your personal journey to the exaltation that that I hope everyone chooses to accept in the end. Amen. 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 All right. Thanks for coming. Hope you'll catch you on our next episode. Uh, peace. <laughs>